Now, Chapter 2 of The Curse. As Helen drove back to Philadelphia, she thought about her conversation with Alicia Brooks. She wanted to find the truth, but even more than that, she wanted to visit the old woman and be her friend. Her parents had divorced when she was a child, and she had gone to live with her maternal grandparents at the age of five. Their home was a loving one. Her grandmother cared very much about seeing that Helen had a good home and did all she could to make Helen feel welcome. Her grandfather would have never been accused of being a warm person. However, Helen knew he loved her as well, even though he was always serious and a man of few words. After a year of addressing her debts, Helen's mother had moved back home and joined Helen. Helen grew up in that household, attending elementary, middle, and high schools in the small town in the Pennsylvania Hills. Following her graduation, she had applied to the University of Pennsylvania to do her graduate work. Helen told Dan about her visit with Alicia Brooks, and he was sympathetic to the story of the lonely old woman and the death of her beloved uncle. Helen told him about the name Prescott and admitted that it was impossible. There must be a million people with that name, Dan. I don't know if it's a first or last name. How do I start this? I'm so busy at school I don't have time to think. We'll both have to think about it. If there's a connection to the story, we'll have to find it. It will take time, and yes, I would like to visit Mrs. Brooks with you. That would be fun. Being that old and that sharp from what you said, it would be interesting to learn more about what life was like so long ago, especially from someone who was alive back then. Two weeks slipped by. Helen read everything she could about the expedition that found King Tutankhamun's tomb. Howard Carter's discovery was one of the greatest stories in the world when it had taken place. She read about Egypt and its tombs, the Valley of the Kings, what Carter went through to secure permission to excavate the tomb, about the fabulous treasures, the people involved, and the curse. She developed a fascination for Carter's benefactor, Lord Carnarvon. George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, was an extremely wealthy British aristocrat born in 1866. He loved two forms of amusement more than any other, breeding racehorses and driving fast cars. Driving had turned him into a near invalid when he was involved in a terrible auto accident in 1901 in Germany. By the time Carter met him, Lord Carnarvon was weak from his injuries and he was residing in Egypt, having taken up an amateur's interest in Egyptology and what might be discovered in the ancient tombs. Lord Carnarvon realized he lacked the professionalism to do what he dreamed of doing, so he chose to fund Carter in his efforts. When King Tut's tomb was unearthed, the world was fascinated with the monumental discovery, and even more so when Lord Carnarvon became extremely ill and died having been bitten by a mosquito that apparently had carried a deadly disease. The man became ill after nicking the bite with a razor while shaving. The ensuing infection cost him his life. His body was returned to England and buried in an ancient hill fort on Bacon Hill. 
Burghclare, Hampshire, England, not far from his ancestral home of Highclere Castle, the castle used in the popular television show Downton Abbey. The curse promised that anyone opening or violating the tomb would be doomed. Carnarvon's death seemed to validate the curse, which spawned stories and books, and even movies about the tale around the world. Today there is a belief, based on scientific evidence, the Lord Carnarvon died because of bacteria present on the walls of the tomb that had been carried by the mosquito. With that, the so-called curse had been laid to rest, so to speak. Richard Fenner's disappearance and presumed murder was not mentioned with the exception of the story that Helen had discovered. The name Prescott did not appear in anything she found. She was ready to give up. It was the end of the trail. Unknown to her, Dan had not been idle in his quest to find out who Prescott might have been and what that person's relationship could have been to Richard Fenner. The Federal Bureau of Investigation came into existence with a handful of agents in January 1908, more than a decade before Howard Carter's discovery, and the FBI would largely become known for being very good at what it does. Dan knew of a special program based on an incredible algorithm that had the ability to connect the dots when nothing made sense at all. He sought permission from his chief to run the quest through the program to see what would show up. He had been putting a huge amount of time on his regular duties, and his chief, when he understood the mystery of Fenner's disappearance, gave him the go-ahead. It only required an hour to turn up a result once the data had been entered. One name had appeared. The name was Prescott. The full name was Albert Prescott. Little was known about the man. He came to the United States in 1936 from Cairo, Egypt. He was British. He had no family in the States. He had apparently made his fortune in selling artifacts to various museums and wealthy individuals in Europe before he moved to America. Shortly after he arrived, he slipped off the grid. The most notable event in 1936 was the Olympics held in Germany. The great Jesse Owens had shown Adolf Hitler's champions what an American athlete could do in competition and the madman had refused to shake his hand. Three years later, Hitler's army swept through Europe and ignited the free world into action. Howard Carter made his fabulous discovery in 1923, and Prescott was selling artifacts around the same time. The link was a tenuous one, but it was a link nevertheless. Many of the artifacts handled by the man and his dealings were later identified as lesser pieces from Tutankhamun's tomb. The question was, how did Prescott come into possession of them, and what was his possible relationship with Howard Carter 